Hello and welcome to the Double Double. My name is David Dixon and it's Friday, June 11th here in New York City. Hope everyone is doing well and getting ready for a nice weekend ahead. A lot of talk about today, a lot of NBA action last night, NBA action to preview tonight and this weekend. But the biggest story in sports the last couple of days, in my view, has been the proposed college football playoff expansion. Uh, so we're so we're gonna get into that because I think it's super super interesting, and it's just a f- expected but fascinating de- development nonetheless. So. The current format is this. Four teams, the top four teams in the country, get decided by a committee. Now, you wish you had a little more clarity, but that's how these committees work, that they go in a room and they rank the four best teams in the country. By watching all the games, winning your conference matters, but it is not an automatic bid the way it is in NCAA basketball or baseball. It's the four best teams in the eyes of the committee. And for the most part, they get it right every year. There's always debate around who should be four, naturally, as it's the seemingly last spot. And there's teams who usually more than one team is has the qualifications and the credentials to be chosen. But it's up to the committee and with some computer analysis to decide who are the four best teams. And so the playoff has been great for the sport. It has made it super, super exciting something to talk about. It feels like a real good national championship decider where it's not perfect. Nothing is perfect, but it it feels like it's a little better than the BCS, partially because it includes four teams instead of two. Now, the playoff has coincided with this period of college football recently where Alabama has been incredibly dominant. Clemson's been dominant. Ohio State the last three, four years, dominant. So it feels like we're getting the same teams every single year, the same conferences every single year, that there really are five or six teams that, quote-unquote, really matter coming into every single season, and that there's some teams who are really, really good who never get a chance to truly prove themselves on that stage. That is now all going to change. The, the proposal is to go to 12 teams, 12, so go go from 4 to 12. Now... I didn't expect it to go to 12. I always thought that from when they first put this playoff into place with four teams, it was always going to go to eight. Eight made the most sense. One plays eight, two, seven, get the most teams. All five power five conference champions would be automatically eligible. Then you have three at-large bids for Notre Dame, uh, a great mid-major team or the group of five like a year where a team like Boise State is 12-0 and or something like that now it's like Cincinnati team like that eight always made the most sense to me but they're going to go to 12 or they're proposing to go to 12 and it seems like from all the media r- r- reporting that it will go to 12 and 12 is a really interesting number because what they're going to do now is the top four seeds are going to have buys they're going to have bye weeks kind of like in the NFL and then they're going to play then it'll be 5-12, 6-11, like that, and then match up that way. It's an interesting proposal, considering it was it's kind of out of left field. It's, you know, I hadn't heard many people talk about 12, but it makes a lot of sense if you've been following sort of the trend of college football, which is it's the second, seemingly the second most popular sport in the country. And they command 
and can make so much money, so much money, that having as many high-stakes playoff games, playoff games where national championships can be decided, it just it makes too much sense because they can make so much money. Because for the four-team playoff back in 2014, when it got decided or first Im- implemented, for ESPN, ESPN won the broadcast rights of those three playoff games, really three playoff games, and then the other major bowl games around it. They paid $5.6 billion, with a B, dollars for, those, for a 12-year contract to broadcast those seven games a year. $5.6 billion. ESPN just paid uh, the, the SEC for the SEC television rights for, for the signature you know, for football. They're giving them $3 billion in, over the length of their contract. The numbers in the TV deals are just bonkersly insane. Insane. So whatever you see floated because ESPN will be involved, CBS will be involved, Fox will be involved. Someone's going to say, you know, everyone's going to say, well, this could be Amazon's chance. Amazon's going to go and get the biggest games the way that they've kind of have so far in their live sports. They go after the biggest things. NFL, Thursday Night Football, certain MLB games like the Yankees, certain uh, European soccer teams. This would be the biggest thing for Amazon. It's the biggest college football game. Someone's going to throw out Amazon because you know why? They have a lot of money. <laughs> they can pay the $15 billion that maybe ESPN can't. Maybe they'll pay the $20 billion. Maybe they pay $25, depending on the, the length of the contract. The number that you will see for this new TV deal, for this expanded playoffs, it's it's going to be ridiculous. And it fits sort of the trend in college football of, and I've, you know, my opinion on this has been clear on this podcast is they played football this past fall because of the TV contracts, because of the money, the schools and the towns needed the money. They needed the football programs to play so that the school could operate. The athletic departments could operate in, in effect the like the towns in a lot of these very small college towns could operate. They played because of the money. And I was a proponent of delaying the season, playing it in the spring the way that Division Two did, the way that, uh, sorry, not Division Two, the the FB, sorry, the FCS, the way that that certain leagues did for other sports. Playing in the spring with the vaccines coming out, it made a lot of sense to me. But their television partners wanted to stick to the normal schedule. The ratings really were affected with the NBA by having the biggest games in August because people don't really watch TV in, in August. And so they stuck to their traditional schedule. It led to this crazy season where teams, lots of postponed games, players testing positive, coaches testing positive, teams having outbreaks, teams losing games when they had a huge outbreak in down position groups, all this stuff. It led to a crazy, crazy season. Now, would that have happened in the spring? Maybe. Probably. The virus is still in control. But with the vaccines and everything, it would have been it would have been different. And now could you imagine if no you know, obviously no one knew right in September when the vaccine was gonna come. But could you imagine now 
looking back to, okay, it's June 11th today. If they played the the football season February through June, and we're talking about next week is Alabama, whoever, who who was in the championship, Alabama, Ohio State, in front of 100,000 fully vaccinated people in Jerry World, it would be like a huge America is back, life is back to normal moment. I don't criticize. I was a proponent of pushing it back and delaying just because the risks then seemingly were 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 too big when they had to make the decision in August. Now it'll be the decision will be talked about and debated for a decade plus from now on. And they worked out, they they got their season in. But they the the powers that be made a lot of decisions last year, seemingly based around the TV contracts and the money. They're gonna get so much more in this deal, so much more, that it's gonna affect even more decisions that that they make going forward. And what it's going to do in effect is it's going to help the college football product as a whole because more teams will now be eligible to play in the playoff because every team that's not a power that be right now but wants to be has to find a way to get there. They have to get on that stage. They have to play these teams. And now they will have an opportunity to do that. They will have an opportunity for an upstart program who says, Hey, we're like Clemson in 2009, 2010. We're trying to turn the corner. We're trying to turn the tor- the corner. We're building we're building towards something. Think of a team like Iowa State, building a program towards something that can really challenge hopefully year after year in your conference, year after year nationally. Now you have a chance to go up against teams who won't play you early in the season most likely. When you're really good, because for whatever reason, the way casual does scheduling, you have to book games like eight years in advance. It's like trying to get, you know, the top of the rock for your wedding. You know, you just got to do like 10 years later. It makes no sense. Absolutely no sense of why certain schools are like, yeah, we'll play you in 2028. So instead of waiting that long and betting you'll be that good with the same coach and everything, you get to play them this year, which will help you recruit being on the biggest national stage. It will help you with your fan base. It will help you with your scheduling non-conference games because now more teams will want to play you because you're considered a big dog. You're considered one of, the, one, of, one of the big programs in college football. And it's going to flow down through the rest of college football because now it's like you don't just have to be one of the top four. You just have to be one of the top 12. You just have to win your conference. And then you get a chance. Not saying in the next in the, in the first two or three years of this that Alabama is going to start losing to the Coastal Carolinas of the world, but now we're going to start seeing maybe Iowa State could beat Georgia in a full fair fight with with both teams having full rosters. Maybe Washington can beat LSU. Maybe, and and we'll get to see that because that's one of the cool parts about sports is. You never know till they're on the field, and we'll see. And let them play and determine the best champion because we love the single elimination. We love tournaments. We love high-pressure moments. It's going to create a lot of that, and then it's going to create better for all of college football because when you get into the November months, so many more teams are going to be eligible because you have to win your conference. So many more teams that start a little slow and then get hot will have a chance or seem like they have a chance to maybe squeak in and, and make it. Not that they'll win the national championship, but it will just make it better for all college football to have more teams involved, more teams 
with a chance to compete and win. And this is different than the NBA playing, who expanded the the playoff pool to two thirds of the league. They're just going from four to twelve of like a hundred and whatever teams that play major college football. And really, it's just the top of the top where instead of six playing eleven in the Fiesta Bowl with nothing on with 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 no stakes and five of the top NFL prospects on both teams opting out so that they don't, so, that, so that they don't get hurt those guys will play cuz there'll be something on the line there'll be something on the line going forward that if they win they can advance they win they can try to win a national championship that is good for the sport of college football that is good for for bowl season of getting still getting the best players to play in the biggest games that are watched by the most people so i'm really excited for it Obviously, there's a lot to work out, whether it's the games are on campus or neutral site, uh, the stuff with Notre Dame because they're not in a conference, but what if they really are the third best team? Do they have to play or do they get a buy? Which conferences get the automatic bids? All that stuff will be finalized and released when this decision seemingly will come, hopefully soon, but it's being discussed by so many major media outlets that it seems pretty definite or not definite, very, very likely so. We will see. I'm very excited for it, and we'll talk about it more as more news come out. But I'm I'm excited for it. It, it should be good for the sport, uh, better football product overall, and the money involved is just insane. Because when you see just how much they make in TV, how much these schools bring in, in advertisements and sponsorships, how much they spend on coaches, how much they spend on facilities. Look, there are fair criticisms about this, adding games in this quote-unquote amateurism model, which, look, we all know it's not truly amateur at the highest level, but if they're going to stick to that model, it's maybe we have to reduce the regular season because these are amateur college kids playing a now a longer season if you play all the way. But hopefully with the NIL legislation coming seemingly this summer, players will be able to, at these biggest, best schools, maximize their earning power while in college, make some money, and it will see that even though a lot of the money will still go to the conferences and to the schools, that the players will be able to benefit from this as well. That it's not just the $20 billion that whoever pays for the rights to this just go to the conferences, to the players, to the schools for nicer locker rooms and crazy buyouts for coaches. But that a player who has an awesome game in the quarterfinals and gets 200,000 new Instagram followers from it is then able to that week do five sponsored posts and make forty grand, because that could be that could be a huge difference in so many of these guys' lives. Is just moments like that. The quarterback on some team, hey, we finished eleventh. Cinderella story, you know. Even if they lose, you gain fifty thousand followers. Now, now you have a hundred fifty, two hundred thousand. You do a couple sponsored posts. That's fifteen k right there, and it's maximizing your earnings while you're in college, and and hopefully that will come, and. We will see more and more of these players be able to make use of it. But that's really exciting. And that's that's what we start off the, the podcast with today. Because the other big story last night was the biggest NBA game, Bucks nets Whew, it was like a time machine last night. I thought it was 2021. But it was like 1991. I mean, geez, the rock fight that... <laughs> that went on between these two teams. So the, the so the Bucks win 86 to 83. Let me repeat that. 86 to 83. It was a 
it was a struggle, a struggle for both teams offensively. The Bucks got out to a huge lead, 32-11. Then the Nets, Nets come back in the second quarter, win, win that quarter, 31-15. And then the third quarter was 23-22 Nets. Fourth quarter, 18-19 Bucks. Just, I've never watched a 90s basketball game before because I wasn't alive, but that seemed like the closest to it. You had guys on the Nets come back to earth and just really struggle. I mean, Joe Harris is not going to go one for 11 from the field very often, but he did. You're not going to have, you know, you're not going to have the Nets a very good shooting team go eight for 32. You're not going to have the Bucks. Well, maybe the Bucks with the way that they've shot in the series, but they went six for 31 from, from three. Drew Holiday, four for 14. It was a struggle for all these teams, for, for both teams to score. And Middleton and Giannis combined for 68 of their 86, which is just insane. And Giannis took 31 shots. Middleton took 25. Middleton hit a couple big shots at the end. But... Giannis's shooting woes and shot selection needs to improve if the Bucs are really going to come back and win this series because they survived this game. They got the win. They had a great chance to win game one, but didn't just, just didn't shoot the ball well enough. But going forward, they moved the ball better in this game, even though the shots weren't falling. Giannis was setting more screens, which was good. But Giannis shouldn't be shooting eight three-pointers in a game. He was one for eight. And I get it. Okay, he's a two-time MVP. He's so open. You got to live with a couple or three, four a game. But if you start 0 for 6 from three and you're still taking dribble up three-pointers in crucial moments of the game, now I get it. He made it. But going, those are just not shots when your season is on the line that you want to be taking. And it's a really hard conundrum with him because he's such a good defensive rebounder. He got 14 rebounds last night, and he's so electric and dynamic in transition that you want him to have the ball. You want him to to bring the ball up because him attacking the basket is one of the best plays in all of basketball. But once it's clear that, hey, the Nets are back set, the Bucks, if he gives it up and goes and sets an immediate ball screen, and dive to the rim, it will just create so much action and reaction from the Nets' defense that it will be hard for them to guard. It's just they have to think more and react more because they're not a good defensive team. They haven't been good all season. They don't have defensive-minded first players except for like Nick Claxton and Bruce Brown. And so getting doing more of that stuff, they should be able to score more than 86 points because the ball will go in. They've shot the ball so poorly the last three games, so poorly, especially from three. You just have to think that the odds will will st- will, will, will flip and the numbers and the percentages will flip and they'll start shooting better because it's not like the Nets are doing anything that special on defense. A lot of this is that the Bucks are just taking bad shots. ISO heavy, no pass or one pass shots. The more they move the ball, the more ball body movement, the better looks that they'll get. And then they'll start, I believe, knocking them down as the series goes on. The other thing I want to mention, Giannis is struggling from the free throw line. Yes. Every single person who says that it takes him longer to shoot a free throw than Usain Bolt to win the 100-meter dash, you are correct. 
he goes over the 10 second rule. He, he, he goes over it. It's a rule violation. You know what else they don't call in the NBA lane violations in game four on every single free throw attempt. Watch how many guys before the shot is released. Cause the rule is you're only allowed to go into the paint on the release of the ball. Watch how many guys step into the lane, have their feet on the line, and just don't follow the rules of that. The NBA could call that every single free throw attempt, but they don't. There are just certain rules in the NBA that they do not enforce. Whether it's right or wrong, they do not enforce them. So, in my view, basically any single time anyone misses a free throw, they should get a redo because on almost every single free throw attempt, there's a lane violation. There is no reason why if you go to an eight-year-old to 11-year-old basketball game of kids just starting out and learning the rules and learning just how to play and have fun, there is no reason why that game is called more strictly and by the book than the NBA. It does not make any sense whatsoever whatsoever and so yes Giannis has struggled he was four for nine last night he went over the time almost everyone he airballed they called it on him once unless it's egregious like when he was at 14 seconds and and they called it it's whatever it's whatever They, they could call so many more things that they just don't it's something that is an issue with the NBA that it's not going to get solved by pointing out and talking about, oh, Giannis takes a while to shooting free throws. You ever seen a screen set in the NBA? They're all, quote unquote, illegal by the books. But unless it's egregious, they don't call it. Kevin Durant in this game proved the magic of watching him play basketball because he is so good. He is so, so good. And I talked on this podcast previewing game three about having Tucker be the predominant matchup on him. And I was surprised that he was. And they got into it a little bit and it seemed to escalate when the security came onto the court and all that stuff. Don't read too much into that. But Tucker played him pretty well. And the crazy part is on a bunch of shots, it didn't matter. It just didn't matter. Kevin Durant is the type of basketball player who if no matter how well you guard him for the most part you know there are certain things you can do to try to get him off his game but there are just many moves that he has and many shots he can get to where it is a make or a miss purely based on does he make or miss the shot where it's almost like the defense isn't there and he hit three just absolutely insane ridiculous shots in the fourth quarter Going one on one, it felt like with Middleton. You know, he hit some. Th- you know, he he hit that three, his last make of the game, coming off the. He fallen out of bounds, gives it up, comes back, comes over the screen. Tucker is right there. Doesn't matter. Bucket. Kevin Durant can get to his spots. He can get to his shots seemingly whenever whenever he wants to, and it's just rise and fire. And so, did the Bucks get lucky that he was eleven for twenty eight instead of fourteen for twenty eight? Sure, but that's part of why you have to score more than 86 points. So looking ahead to game four on, on Sunday afternoon, 
the Bucks had to be thinking, thinking to themselves, how do we get to 110? How do we get to 110 points? And it's a lot of ball movement. It's a lot of body movement. And if and if you're the Nets, don't worry too much about this one. You shot the ball so poorly. Guys missed a lot of shots that they otherwise would have made. Maybe have Kyrie try to get to the free throw line a little more. He only took two free throws attempts. but And no one else on the roster but Kyrie or KD did. But this is still on the Bucks. They still have to make more adjustments than the Nets. But I'm excited to see how the series goes going forward. Other game last night, Clippers-Jazz. Jazz win. Jazz played really well. I think the Clippers are still recovering a little bit from the previous series. You can really see the effect of Rudy Gobert when he was out of the game. It was like a layup line for the Clippers at times. Donovan Mitchell was exceptional. 37 points. Shot the ball really efficiently. 15 for 29 from the field. 6 for 12 from 3. I've talked about before. His off-the-dribble jump shots are insane. He's so, so, so good at it. And he's a really, really fun player to watch. The way the Jazz can pass and move the ball, incredible. But he's going to start getting the Kawhi Leonard treatment. Ty Lue is an adjustments coach. He's an adjustments guy. And they're going to start adjusting. And it's going to be really, really interesting to see what to, to see what they do. And they're definitely not out of it. Kawhi Leonard's still the best player in, in the series. Going back to L.A., we'll see. We'll see. I'm excited to see what the adjustments are. Games tonight, quickly. We got two games. Sixers-Hawks, Nuggets-Suns. Hawks-Sixers 1-1. Can the Hawks do anything to slow down Joel Embiid? Can they do anything? Maybe they double-team him more. Maybe. Maybe you front him with weak side help. Maybe they... Maybe he just doesn't get the same whistle he was getting in Philly. But if Embiid is still healthy, and if he's on his game, they're going to be really, really hard to beat just because he's such a matchup nightmare. And they did a pretty decent job on Trey Young last game. Got to keep that up and match up on the wings because the Hawks can really shoot the ball. They can really shoot the ball. So expect them to shoot pretty well from three of the next two games while the role guys are at home. I'm excited for it. It should be a good. It should be a good series, and we'll see what and we'll see the adjustments. So, so much of this series is adjustments, and right now the Sixers have the ultimate trump card, which is we have Joel Embiid, and you guys really don't have anyone t- to stop him. Other game tonight: Suns Nuggets. The Suns are playing really well. The Suns are playing really, really well. They are such a well put together roster around Chris Paul, Booker, Aiton, Crowder, Johnson, Bridges, Payne. Really good team. Really good team. They shoot the ball really, really well. Sirius moves back to Denver. Guys on Denver should shoot the ball a little bit better. For whatever reason, Denver seemingly always plays better with their backs against the wall in these series. It's just something bizarre about the last two or three years with them. My main point for this series is no matter what happens tonight, and no matter what happens going forward in this series, because I do think that the Suns will beat them. This is where you really see the effects of Jamal Murray's injury and absence for Denver. Is no matter what happens, Nikola Jokic deserved to win MVP this year. He was the best player in the regular season. It is a regular season award. He was the best player. He was the most durable of all the main contenders for the award in terms of LeBron, Embiid, Curry, 
whoever else you want to throw in there, Jokic was the most durable, played the most games. He used the rightful MVP this season, and he deserved it. So no matter what happens, and if they get swept, just remember Nikola Jokic deserved to win MVP this past season because it's a regular season award, and he was the best player. If you want to say that, oh, he didn't deserve it, talk to the league, send them a message on Twitter, and say, create a playoff MVP award the way that hockey does, the way that the NHL does. Because then you'll have the regular season MVP, the playoff MVP, and then the finals MVP. Because the regular season MVP is a different award than the playoffs MVP. Just remember, Jokic deserved to win, no matter what happens the rest of the series. Because I think the Suns will win. I think that they're just a little bit better. I would love to see the Nuggets make a comeback. It would be really exciting. I feel really bad for Chris Paul, too. But just remember, Jokic deserved to win the MVP. That'll do it for this episode of the Double Double. If you like this podcast, you can find us on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe, rate, and review. Five stars would be much, much appreciated. You can also follow us on Twitter at DBL underscore DBL podcast. We'll be back hopefully tomorrow. Take care and make it a great day.